So we have arrived in December, almost to the end of the year. But December, what I think is, I think December, I don't know how you feel. I love the summer months, uh, I, I do, but I, I think December is the best month of all, mainly because it has what I think are the best holidays, right? So obviously we know about the best holiday ever, which I think is Christmas, but that's not the only great holiday in December. For example, did you know that tomorrow, December 4th, is National Cheetah Day, which I always feel like goes by way too quickly, don't you? Tuesday, some of you will get that later, Tuesday, December 5th, is National Ninja Day, which some of you are like, I'd haven't heard anything about that, and yeah, you probably haven't because they're ninjas, so you haven't heard anything about it. Uh, Friday, December 8th, is National Brownie Day, which for some of you is every day, but December 8th is National Brownie Day. The only problem with that is that National Ice Cream Day is not until next Wednesday, December 13th, which America should be able to be better at that. We should be able to get those two days on the same, uh, two things on the same holiday. Along those lines, next Friday, December 15th, is National Cupcake Day, and December 16th is National Chocolate-Covered Everything Day. So sweet days galore in the month of December. On an odd slash funny note, and I'm not making this up, December 18th is National Answer the Phone Like Buddy the Elf Day which I think is great. Buddy the Elf, what's your favorite color, for those of you who don't know the movie? Um, and then December 21st, I won't name names, but her, uh, you know, you know who you are. Uh, if you celebrate this day, you have, you have a day. Uh, December 21st is, 21st is National Short Girl Appreciation Day. So for those of you, you know, I won't name names, but some of you are looking at certain people and you know who they are. You know, she knows who she is, I don't, you know. Of course, the best day, uh, you know, uh, is, is Christmas Day, uh, the ultimate holiday. But did you know that the very next day, December 26th, is National Winers Day? So we got Christmas Day, the 25th. 26th is National Winers Day. Now, when I first saw that, I thought literally it was a day for us to just whine about all the things that we don't like, which on one hand, I'm thinking, I know a lot of people, myself included at times, we don't need a day for that, right? We do, that's just a day that ends in why. But I also thought about in some ways, I get it because at that point, we've already spent Christmas Day with family, so maybe there is some room for, you know, 26 being National Winers Day. But actually, the holiday itself uh, was started in 1986 by a minister from Michigan, actually, uh, named Kevin Zaborny to remind people that they don't need to whine but should be thankful, especially right after celebrating Christmas. Zaborny was convinced that the better way to approach the day after Christmas was not to complain that we didn't get this or we didn't get that or, you know, whatever it is that we may be complaining about. And we kind of have this sense of entitlement in our country with all the blessings that we have. Sometimes we lose sight of that but rather to look around and to see the good in our lives and in our world. And so even though it's called National Winers Day, literally, that's what it's called, uh, the name is actually upside down from the true spirit of the day, which according to Zaborny is to quit complaining and to be an anti-whiner and to look around and see all there is to be thankful for. And I think that is very appropriate. Speaking of turning things upside down, we are starting a new series this week that will run through uh, the, the end of the year, through the Christmas holidays, uh, and it's called Upside Down Christmas. And as we're going to see, 
Nothing turns things upside down like the story and the truth and the reality of Jesus. Now, if you'd never heard anything about Jesus, and you just said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to study this guy that everybody's talking about, seems to be so popular, and I'm just going to open up my Bible, I'm going to turn to the New Testament, I'm going to turn and read the first book in the New Testament, and I'm going to read what it says. This is the very first line. You will read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Super thrilling, right? Everybody's like, okay, but if he's such a good guy, why does it start with this, the genealogy, right? And then you're going to read after that 40 lines or so of the father of, the father of, the father of, the father of. And again, wh- wh- why? If, if, he's, if he's so popular, why, like, why start with this? That doesn't seem like the best place to start. But you have to understand, to the original readers, this wasn't boring, This wasn't a a, a terrible place to start. This was one of the best and most foundational places to start because Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, and to them, nothing really was more interesting than a genealogy and more important even than a genealogy. They used genealogies for all different kinds of things in that day, especially to establish legal matters like who can inherit property, who can carry on the family name. It it was important to uh, even sacred assignments were determined by it. And so, for example, you have this uh, incident in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, or Ezra, where uh, the Israelites are coming back, the people of Israel are coming back from Babylonian bondage. And so uh, they, they get back, and some guys come, and they want to work in the temple. And they, their first question they're asked is, well, where's your family records? You know, they, they say, we, we're priests. We, we come from a lineage of, of Levi. So, and, and question that. Where's your family records? Prove that you are who you say you are. And Ezra chapter 2 verse 62 says, they searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood because they couldn't prove they were descended from Levi. You see, from a Jewish perspective, no true Messiah could just show up and announce that he is the Messiah. The first question they're going to ask him, okay, where's your family record? Prove that you are who you say you are, and in particular, prove that you are a descendant of the line of David. You see, the story of Jesus doesn't start in a galaxy far, far away, but rather it starts right in real life. Matthew starts with what I'm going to tell you is real history, real people. It's in the record. You can check this out for yourself. And so there are some who say, well, you know, Christianity is just a made-up thing. It's just a fable. The story of Jesus, that, that wasn't really true. It's just, you know, something that people make up to make themselves feel better. And Matthew's like, have you, have you read my, my, my book? Go, go read chapter one of my book. Because Matthew wants us to know that this isn't some fairy tale. This isn't some fable. Jesus has an established family record with real authenticated people from history. We can go back and check it. You can walk through. These are real people. And so as you go through the names, you figure out really quickly, Matthew's not just giving a genealogy, but rather he's also giving, more importantly, a theology. Just look at how it ends in verses 16 and 17. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Matthew, or uh, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And so Matthew is, is really just preaching a sermon to people who are looking for a Messiah. 
And in preaching that sermon, he's going to turn things upside down from what they thought that Messiah would look like. And in doing so, he grounds them in what I think, and us as well, in four foundational truths. And the first is this. In, in this family record, Matthew is saying God came in the flesh. God came in the flesh. Jesus was a real person with real ancestors. You see, most religions are built on principles that don't really depend on the person that started the religion ever existing. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't exist. I'm just saying that the core tenets of the religion itself doesn't really depend on that person being a real live person who really existed. But Christianity isn't like most other religions. The fundamental tenet of Christianity is that Jesus was a real person from a real town called Nazareth. He was born of a real mother named Mary, and that he actually was God in the flesh, that deity was poured into humanity, born of a woman by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Matthew makes it very clear, if you notice the way he frames it, he makes it very clear to note that while Joseph was the legal father of Jesus, he was not the biological father. Listen to what he writes. All through these genealogies, he says, the father of, the father of, the father of. But look at what he writes in verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, and Joseph was the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus. He's saying Jesus wasn't the, the, uh, Joseph wasn't the biological dad of Jesus. Now, he did adopt him, and under the legal system that was in place at that time in, in, uh, in, in Jewish culture, Jesus became the legal father of, of Joseph, or Joseph became the legal father of Jesus, but he was born of God into Mary. And Christmas is claiming something so incredibly huge that eternal God, and just wrap your mind, the eternal God who created the universe was once an embryo in the virgin womb of a teenage Jewish girl. That the one who spoke the universe into existence had to learn to speak. That the one who holds the cosmos together was so tiny and vulnerable that he had to be held in order to survive. It's perhaps the most amazing claim in history. And the affirmation of the incarnation, of God coming in the flesh in human form, is absolutely critical to our faith as Christians. It is at the core of what we believe. In fact, John put it this way in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. He said, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. This is the marker. You want to know what it looks like to, to, to have, the, you know, to, the, for the Spirit of God? Like, this is the marker of it. Every spirit that, that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh is not from God. Matthew's saying right off the bat in this family record, God came into our world. He came into our neighborhood in the flesh. And secondly, he came, out, he came to work out a plan. Matthew's saying, listen, Jesus isn't just an afterthought. Jesus isn't heaven's plan B. No, Jesus has always been the center and the focus of God's plan of salvation. I think that's part of what Matthew's pointing out when he includes those 14 uh, generations 14 generations from him to him, 14 from him to him, 14 from him to him. Now, to be honest, if you go back and you look at the historical data, Matthew isn't exactly historically accurate. Now, he is accurate in the names that he presents, but he doesn't include all the names. You say, well, why does he do that? Well, I, 
I don't know all the reasons, but I think part of it is that to the Jewish person, they would have understood that significance of 14. Seven is a number of perfection. So 14 is like double perfection. To say it is, it, it, there is a completeness there in these 14, 14, 14. And so part of what Matthew is saying is that every major period of our history, through every major period of, of, of your history as the Israelites, through the patriarchs and the judges, through all the kings, through all the time after the exile, God has been working through them, through them, through them. These are not random things that are happening. God's been working out a plan since the beginning of time and all throughout these stages. Now, it didn't always seem like God was in control. And there were times where it felt like things were out of control, but God was always in charge. And he's been the directing the affairs of the world, including in particular this seemingly insignificant little nation of people. In fact, if you were going to read the book of Genesis or the book of uh, Matthew in the original Greek language, do you know how it literally starts? It's so very interesting. The first two words literally are biblos genesis, genesis geneseos. I don't speak Greek, so yeah. Biblos geneseos, which sounds like, you can kind of hear the genesis, right? Literally, book of genesis, book of birth, book of beginning. In essence, Matthew is saying Jesus is the beginning. That's where it all starts. Everything starts with Jesus. And God has been at work in these places and with these people so that ultimately he can bring all people underneath the real and to the real beginning. In other words, you don't start to understand history by starting with the birth of the world. The only way you can understand history is to start with the birth of the king and ruler of the world. Because God came in the flesh, to work out a plan, and then thirdly, to bring in a kingdom. That's why Matthew starts, interestingly enough, with Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham came first, as far as the chronological order, but Matthew starts with David, and I think a lot of that has to do with he's connecting Jesus with the most important kingly promise in Israel. Back in Samuel chapter, Second uh, Samuel chapter seven, God spoke to David about his son Solomon. So David wants to build, um, he wants to build a, 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 a temple for God, and 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 you know for his dwelling. And and ultimately, God says, "No, your son's going to do that for me." And I want you to understand what's going to come through his line. And so in in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says this to, to David about Solomon. He says, he, Solomon, is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And every Israelite clung to that promise that God would establish David's throne forever. Now, if you read through history, the Israelites had been under a lot of thrones, And under a lot of kings, up until that point, they'd been oppressed, they'd been put down, but God promised that David's throne would last forever. And so somebody's coming. A Messiah is coming, and he's going to make things right again. Now, pretty much all, if you read through the story, pretty much all of David's descendants proved to be colossal disappointments. But here's the thing about God. Broken people can't make God break his promises. And out of all the mess in David's family, God was going to birth 
a Messiah. Do you remember what the, the Magi say, the, the wise men say when they come to Herod? They say, where is he, which had to be such an insult in the face of Herod, but they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They knew. And Matthew's trying to establish the point that the right of Jesus to reign, that's his. Jesus has the right to sit on the throne. And honestly, I don't think we talk about that enough. You know, we talk a lot about Jesus is the, the Messiah, Jesus is the Savior, in which we should, but he is also our sovereign and our Lord. He didn't just come to forgive our sins. He came to take charge of our life. I like how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1. He said, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Paul says not only did Jesus come, and not only did he die, but he rose again. And then after he rose, he conquered death, and he now sits on the throne. And that's good news. Because you see, Christmas to Matthew is not just the birth of baby Jesus but is the birth and arrival of King Jesus. And Matthew wants us to see right now what someday the whole earth is going to see when Jesus comes back, that he owns the throne. The king has come down and he has turned everything upside down because you see, God came in the flesh to work out a plan, to bring in a kingdom that leaves no one out. And that's not what any of them were expecting. They expected the Messiah to come and kick the Romans out, to kick the Gentiles out, to kick the unworthy out and the unrighteous out. And Matthew turns everybody, everything upside down by saying, do you remember who all is in the family tree? Do, do you know who's in the family tree of Jesus? I mean, wouldn't you expect Jesus? Okay, if, if you were going to plan out this Messiah thing, and you're going to have who, who this Messiah comes from. Wouldn't you expect it to be like a perfect family tree? Everybody's got the, you know, the, the things lined up and everything's worked out just perfectly. Because that's how kings did things back then, right? They just come and erase these names from their family records, people they didn't like. You know? Yeah, they, they didn't really live up to standards, so I'm going to take them out. I'm going to you know, accentuate this person. Like Herod, for example, who was king at the time that Jesus was born. He wanted to be considered king of the Jews, but he was actually an Edomite. And so he just took his genealogy and he said, take him out, take him out, take him out. That's what kings did. But Matthew doesn't exclude any of the unsavory names. I mean, the, there are some men in this list that Matthew includes that were terrible men and terrible kings. But perhaps even more shocking and scandalous than who Matthew doesn't exclude is who he does include. You see, genealogies in that day were almost, I mean, they weren't almost, they were predominantly male-oriented, male-dominated. They were patriarchal. In Matthew's day, women were second-class citizens, and in many ways, Jesus changes that. God changes that at the very beginning, but Jesus completely flips it upside down. And so, why would you have a woman in a family record? I mean, they can't inherit anything, they don't own anything. And yet Matthew includes women. And so you say, okay, well, Matthew, if, if you're, you know, at that point, if you're going to include women, if you're going to put them in, at least put some of the heroes in, right? At least, at least put the good names in like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. But oh no, 
Because perhaps the even bigger shocker is that Matthew goes to the closet and he gets some of the ugliest skeletons out of the family closet. I mean, you want to pick the biggest scandals of all scandals. That's the one Matthew includes. Like, for example, in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 1, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, some of you may not know that story. I'll just give you the, the kind of the um, Cliff Notes version of it. It's in the Old Testament. Tamar was a guy named Judah's daughter-in-law. So he married one of, her, uh, one of his sons. Uh, her husband died. So by law, he was supposed to give, and he did, another son, he died, but he's supposed to give his, a, a son, and she, to, to bear him, sorry, he's supposed to take one of his other sons, and she, he is to marry her, to then give her a son to carry on that first husband's lineage from his family. Well, Judah says, I'm not doing that, because she's already had a couple of husbands die, so he kind of puts her off. So in turn, she dresses like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law and gets pregnant. That's one of the names in the lineage. How scandalous is that, right? Go to verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. If you remember Rahab, she didn't just dress up like a prostitute. She was a prostitute. Of course, this prostitute also saw what God was doing around her and took a courageous step of faith. But nonetheless, I mean, Matthew, what are you thinking, right? Then also in verse 5, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, Ruth was a noble woman, if you know that story, but Ruth was a Moabite. I don't know if you know much about the Moabites, but they came from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters, and the Jews considered the Moabites the most evil and wicked of all people. Matthew, what are you doing here? If you showed up at the temple and you had Moabite on your passport, you're not getting in. And if that weren't enough, Matthew then goes and gets maybe the darkest story in the family and pulls it out of the closet. David, the first one we read about, verse 6, was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah, somebody else's wife. And if you know that story, not even the soap operas can keep up with that. Deception, lust, adultery, murder. Why do you have those in the closet? Well, I mean, sorry, we know why they're in the closet. Why are you bringing them out of the closet, right? Why, what are you doing, Matthew? I mean, as a PR man, this is not how you paint a picture of the Messiah. Why would you pull those out of the, out of the family closet, pull those skeletons out? Because Matthew wants us to know that the Messiah came out of a mess, Jesus didn't just come for sinners like you and me. Jesus came from sinners like you and me. He came to earth because of people like his own relatives, but he didn't come to take them out. He came to bring them in. And their mess would become a part of the message. You know, perhaps the most beautiful verse, Christmas verse in in particular probably the most well-known verse in all the Bible as well, is John 3.16. I love these words. It's so simple. We, we've, we've read it and heard it so much that maybe we lose sight of just the, the impact and some of the, the, the tenets that are in there that are so powerful. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And perhaps the greatest word in the greatest verse is the word whoever. 
because that's all of us. We are all citizens of Whoville, right? Because unlike other faiths, the birth of Jesus means that out can be in. You see, the theology of Christianity is completely upside down. I mean, it really is. Maybe we've heard these things so much that we, we just take them for granted. But in all other religions, you have all of these rules so that you can measure up. You can decide who's in and who's out, who doesn't measure up and who does, who needs to be excluded. And yet in Christianity, scandal is not just a part of the story. Scandal is the point of the story. Like, Matthew includes it to say, this is what your Messiah came out of and what he came for. It starts with scandal. His birth was a scandal. He lived all of it. But we don't think about this a whole lot. He lived his entire life with whispers and sayings like, your mom was, she's pregnant and she's not married. His family tree is full of scandal. Even Matthew, the guy who wrote it, was a tax collector, which you want to talk about scandal. That's scandal with a capital S. And yet none of them are taken out. All of them are written in. And their mess became part of the message that can ultimately turn the world right side up. You see, the scandal of redemption is the redemption of scandal. Christmas means we don't have to ignore the scandal. You know, we we try and put that stuff down. We put on a a happy face and, and we cover it up, but we don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to act like it can't, it didn't ever happen. No, it can be redeemed and included in the story. And I think that is such good news for all of us who are messed up and jacked up. You know, we like to come to church, myself included at times, and we put on this front that we've got it all together. We've got it all figured out. And yet we're all messed up. We're all screwed up. And Matthew says, welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. Because God's seen it all. And there's nothing in your history that's going to shock him. There's no part of your story that he cannot redeem. Now again, that doesn't mean that we pretend like the mess-ups aren't there, that they don't happen. That's not at all what it is. But rather, we recognize that through Christ, God redeems the mess and makes it part of the message. And Christmas in so many ways says to all of us, what are you waiting for? Come on in.